I read a story about a pastor who was resigning his position at his church. He was going to go lead a different church, and after he announced his resignation, he was approached by an endearing older member of the congregation, and she was weeping over the pastor's decision to leave. And she said, you know what, things are are never going to be the same without you. And the minister was trying to console her, and he said, you know what, don't worry. I am confident that you're going to get a new pastor who's better than me. And she kept crying, and she said, well, that's what the last three pastors said, but (laughs) it just kept getting worse. Yeah, I have those times where you start maybe get a little bit too high of an opinion of yourself, only to be brought back down to earth by something somebody says. Usually it's a kid because they don't have any filters. Um, But maybe it's just somebody else. Um, Or maybe something happens to you that humbles you. Today we're continuing our series where we're looking at practical ways where we can learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. For this series, we've been using 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter of uh, Paul's letter, as a jumping off point to look at different ways that we can love our neighbors well. This week, we're going to see that, like Jeff read with verse 4, that love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, it's not proud. We want to look and see how we can develop humility. In order to do this, we're going to look and see exactly what humility is, especially from a biblical standpoint. We want to see how the Bible views humility and specifically how Jesus teaches about it and look at some examples from Scripture of people who are humble. And then finally, we'll see how we can take the principles that we're going to learn and then put those into practice in our lives. So let's dive in. What is humility? If we were looking up in the dictionary, here's what we'd find. Humility is a modest or low view of one's importance, humbleness. I've got a few other definitions from some different authors. The first is Andrew Murray, who is a South African pastor. Here's how he describes humility. He says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Another way to look at it comes from Robert Morneau in his book titled Humility. He writes, it is the habitual quality whereby we live in the truth of things. The truth that we are creatures, not the creator. The truth that our life is a composite of good and evil, light and darkness. The truth that in our littleness, we have been given extravagant dignity. Humility is, a saying, is saying a radical yes to the human condition. It's an old story of a young boy who was awarded the title in his class, Most Humble, and they gave him a little medal for it. However, the next week they took it away because he wore it to class. (laughs) Humility is one of those things that as soon as you think you've got it down, yeah, you realize you've got a long way to go. Uh, I read that Benjamin Franklin had a list of virtues that he worked on one at a time and until he mastered them and, and... He was going pretty well until he got to the virtue of humility because when he thought he had mastered it, 
You know, he, he was filled with pride, and then he had to start all the way over. One author writes that true humility is not to think low of oneself. That was in that you know, dictionary definition. It's not really to think low about yourself, but it's to think rightly and truthfully of yourself. I mean, that's one of the conundrums we fall into, right? Like we, we try, some, some might try to think worse of ourselves in order to keep us humble. But that's really just a false humility. So what does biblical humility look like? Well, let's look and see what the Bible has to say, beginning with a few passages from the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 131. It's a short psalm. It's only three verses. In it, it says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. It's not having a proud heart. It's eyes that are not haughty, which just means like an arrogant superiority. David writes that humility means keeping that proper perspective. We're not concerned with matters that are too wonderful for us. It's finding contentment and it's putting our hope in the Lord. Micah 6, 8, Glenn read this, I think, talks about the command from the Lord that his followers should walk humbly with them. He has shown you, O O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Of course, there's a famous proverb that we might misquote sometimes, but it's still Important, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, the New Testament is also not silent on this matter. James writes in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And then Peter writes to his readers that they should, in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So biblical humility is not prideful, it's not arrogant. It is to live that content life, walking humbly with God, relying totally on God. And Paul warns against displaying a false humility. When writing to the Colossians about those who were imposing ceremonial food laws on people, Paul wrote this, Colossians 2.23, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So he's exposing these people for having that outward display of wisdom, that outward display of humility, but it's false. It's not actual. It's not real. This is one of the subjects that Jesus teaches about as well. There's two passages that can really help us understand his teaching of humility. First, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at dinner at a Pharisee's house, and he shares this teaching. In Luke 14, 7, he says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. 
If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So when you think of yourself too highly, odds are you're going to be humbled at some point, maybe even humiliated. Pride seems to be behind many of the sins in our lives. I mean, even the first sin of Adam and Eve could be one as pride. They wanted to be like God. That was the temptation, right? Like, you can be like God to find good and evil for themselves. And when we sin, we, we can fall into that same trap. We want to define good and evil for ourselves. We don't think that what God calls a sin should be a sin. Jesus is teaching this passage that we can become prideful as well uh, as, you know, uh, prideful of who we are, that we've got some importance And it might be true, you might have some importance, but as someone wise once said, you know, there's always a bigger fish. Mark Twain, in his older years, uh, he was strolling in the park one day, and this little girl came up to him and and asked if she could walk with him. Twain was uh, flattered, and he told her stories for about an hour. And then he gave her a nickel and said, now run along home, and when you grow up, you can tell your friends that you once walked with Mark Twain. She looked at him and burst into tears. She's like, Mark Twain, I thought you were Buffalo Bill. (laughs) So regardless of your stature, there's always somebody that's going to be more important, especially in somebody else's eyes. Now, of course, Jesus had a recommendation for his listeners, which would save them from that kind of embarrassment. Be humble. Luke Luke 14.10, but when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. At the dinner party, there are seats of importance around the table. There is a place of honor. And if you think yourself important and you take that seat, then you're going to run the risk of somebody coming along and asking you to move from that seat because... Somebody of greater importance has come. But if you remain humble before you go in, you keep that proper perspective, you realize it doesn't really matter where I sit. So you don't have a problem sitting in the lowest place. And from there, you might get moved to a better place. Think of it like, you know, a dinner where your whole family's coming together, like Thanksgiving. And, you know, you've got the adult table, and then you've got the kids' table, Right? And one year you go in and you're like, you know what, it's my turn. I'm moving to the adult table. (laughs) And then your loving aunt or somebody comes up to you and it's like, no, go, go back to the kids' table. And humiliated, you slink back to the kids' table. But instead, in your humility, what if you chose to sit yourself at the kids' table first? And then, your loving aunt. I just say my loving aunt because, you know, she's somewhere in this room, I think. But (laughs) She moves you to the adult table. And then you can stay there. And then you realize, kids' table is way more fun. I should have stayed there. (laughs) I'm not sure that's exactly one-to-one to what Jesus was talking about, but I think you're getting the idea. The main point of the passage, though, it's found in verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
That's that whole upside-down kingdom that Jesus is initiating with his coming. I mean, what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Jesus tells another parable in Luke 18. She gives us a little different view of humility. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Can you hear the pride in that statement? He, he, he's trying to exalt himself while praying to God. He's comparing himself with others who he perceived that he was better than, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, and even this tax collector who's nearby. But then Jesus moves to the tax collector in his prayer. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector knew that in, in, as a sinful human being, he's not even worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. His prayer isn't focused on anybody other than him. It's not focused on anybody other than himself. And it's not to ask God or to thank God for how great he is, for how great the tax collector is. It is to plead for mercy. Because the tax collector has a proper perspective. He's not trying to elevate himself. And so Jesus says he's the one that's going to go home justified before God. And he says the exact same thing that he said in chapter 14. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, the Bible is filled with examples with people who fit both of these descriptions. One example from the Old Testament, if you think about the difference between the first two kings of Israel in Saul and David. Saul was very much somebody who had the look of a king, what we think a king should look like. You know, he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, handsome guy. And he led for a time until he disobeyed God and, and God's prophet Samuel. And the anointing of God as Israel's king, it moved from Saul to David. God took it away from Saul. It moved to David, who's the youngest of Jesse's sons. And might not have had the look, same look of the king as his brothers. But he was described as a man after God's own heart. Because it was the inside that mattered. But you can see the difference between the two. I mean, after David killed Goliath, Saul became so jealous of him that he tried to kill him multiple times. And then when he was in hiding from Saul, David had two opportunities to kill Saul, like could have easily gotten away with it. And he chose not to because Saul was the Lord's anointed king. There was a humility with David that wasn't there with Saul. Now, if we move to the New Testament, I want to focus on two people in particular. The first is the Apostle Paul. 
Paul was originally a Pharisee who, as he was traveling to the city of Damascus, he encountered the risen Jesus. Before his encounter with Jesus, Paul was just somebody who was absolutely against the followers of Jesus. He hunted them. He was arresting them. even approved of the killing of them, like, in, uh, like with Stephen early in the book of Acts. As after Jesus spoke with Paul, though, all of that fervor that he had went from being against the Christians to being for Jesus. It was directed for the Lord and the spreading of the kingdom, in, of the kingdom and he specifically did it toward non-Jewish uh, parts of the world. Paul wrote letters to some of the churches that he planted, and, and we've got some of those letters in our Bibles. It's in these letters that we see the humility of Paul. There's a passage in this uh, 2 Corinthians where Paul is describing about people boasting. And he's basically saying, you know what, you can boast, but I can match your claims pretty easily if I wanted to boast. He's, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And he goes on, talks about more things. When you're boasting, that's not typically what you're going to boast about. He goes on into chapter two, but then at, or chapter twelve. But at the end of that section, after he's talking about a thorn in the flesh that that God had apparently given him, he 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 sees it as something to keep him from getting conceited. Here's what he says, though, in verse nine, chapter twelve. He's Paul says, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Uh, if we're truly humble, like if we are humble, truly, truly humble, how much easier is it for us to be used by God? And we may go through tough times. We may have something that we perceive as weakness, but it's in our weakness that God is strong. They're saying that it's possible to be too big for God to use you, but never too small. There's a Christian minister who once said that I was never of any use until I found out that God did not intend me to be a great man. 
if we can look on ourselves like Paul did as servants of God, we can open ourselves up to being used by God for furthering his kingdom here on earth. There's one more example. Of course, this is the greatest example that we could have in Jesus. Dr. David Livingston, who was a Scottish missionary, said that Jesus had an only son, and he was a missionary and a physician, a poor, poor imitation of him I am or wish to be. Would we not say that? We want to even just be a poor imitation of Christ. Even before his birth, the humility of the Messiah was prophesied in, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not, so he did not open its mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. And we know that Jesus was born in the most humble of conditions, to a teenage mother in pretty much a barn in a small town a few miles outside Jerusalem. We know that Jesus lived a pretty simple life where he said that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, not really having like a home. Paul even writes about Jesus and how we should have the same mindset of Christ in Philippians 2, verses 6 or 8. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He even humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, that we should be like Christ, even as a poor, poor imitation. God himself coming down from his throne to take on human form, to live as one of us, to teach us, to die for us. So what can we do to live humbly? There's a few things. First, ask God to show you your prideful ways. What is that pride? Where is that pride seeping into your lives? And then confess those prideful ways that he is convicting you of. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. And so confess that sin of pride to God. And then pray that you would see yourself like God sees you. Holy and dearly loved for certain, but also forgiven. Forgiven of all your debts against God. And not from anything that you've done, because we don't want you to be prideful. But it's Christ's work on the cross. You've really got nothing to boast about when it comes to your salvation. And that's not to diminish you. It's not to make you feel low of yourself, but it's just the truth. It's to give you that proper perspective. And then pray that the Holy Spirit would change you inwardly. That he would work on your heart and change you from the inside out. When the interior changes, then God's going to do some amazing things through you. 
And then finally, you got to do your part with this too. God will do a lot of the work, but then you've got to actually do some as well. Remain humble before God. Keep putting others first. Continue to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Samuel Morse was the guy who invented the telegraph, Morse code. He was having a conversation with Reverend George Hervey who asked him, Professor Morse, when you were making your experiments yonder in your room in the university, did you ever come to a stand, like to a stop, not knowing what to do next? And Morse replied, oh yes, more than once. Well, at such times, what did you do next? He said, I may answer you in confidence, sir, but it is a matter of which the public knows nothing. He said, I prayed for more light, more understanding. And the reverend asked, and the light generally came. And he answered, yes. And may I tell you that when flattering honors came to me from America and Europe on account of the invention which bears my name, I never felt I deserved them. I'd made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone and was pleased to reveal it to me. If we all continue to develop biblical humility in our lives, we focus more on him, not us, then we remain open to being used for his work for his kingdom. And can you imagine the impact just this church here could have if we did that? And so today, let's make a decision to do that. Again, not for our glory, but for God's. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we do pray that we would remain humble. Again, not thinking less of ourselves, but just thinking of ourselves less, as many have said in the past. Lord, you are everything. It is through your, the work of your son, through, the, through his death, on a cross, that we are able to live in such a way that we are able to come to you, to be changed by you, to be welcomed into your family. And so, Lord, we just pray that, not because of the work that we've done, but because of the work that you did, that we would continue to keep that mindset, that proper perspective of humility. Lord, we come to a time in our service now where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. We come to the time of communion where we take the bread that represents his body that was broken. We take the cup that represents the blood that was spilled. And we, we remember and we thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we also remember that Jesus conquered death. 
that he came back. Lord, help us to live that out in our lives every day. That we trust not in something that's just historical, not in something that is, is, isn't real. We trust in a living Savior, in your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.